Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. At around 1 a.m. on June 17, 1972, three plainclothes police officers were patrolling the Foggy Bottom neighborhood of Washington, D.C. when a call came over the radio. A security guard at the Watergate complex, just a few blocks away, had found evidence of a break-in. When the officers arrived at the scene, the 24-year-old security guard, Frank Wills, explained that he had been making his rounds when he discovered an exterior-facing stairwell door had been taped so it wouldn't lock. He removed the tape, but when he returned 10 minutes later, he found that someone had reset it. As the officers made their way upstairs, they found that every door leading from the stairwell into the office had been taped. On the sixth floor, a door had been forced open. It led into the main offices of the Democratic National Committee. The officers crept through the darkened office space, ears straining for any movement. As they entered a side office, a figure leapt up out of the darkness and cried, Don't shoot! The police switched on the lights to reveal five men in business suits and rubber gloves cowering beneath an office desk. The third-rate burglary had been foiled almost as soon as it had begun. But the Watergate saga was just getting started. Soon, it would open the eyes of the American people to a dark truth. Their nation was not led by upright civil servants, but by ruthless, power-hungry men who were willing to cheat, lie, and steal to get what they wanted. And that's just the official story. The truth might be even darker. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. 
Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on Watergate, the political scandal that began in 1972 when five men were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. Over the next two years, journalists and congressional investigators exposed the White House's involvement in the crime and the ensuing cover-up, ultimately leading to the end of Richard Nixon's presidency. This week, we're covering the accepted story on Watergate. Next week, we'll dive into some of the wilder conspiracy theories and bizarre stories surrounding the scandal. We'll follow Watergate's very first whistleblower as she's kidnapped and held captive against her will. We'll investigate the role of Watergate persons in a Boeing 737 crash that killed 45 people. And we'll explore the connections between Watergate and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Bob Woodward was awakened by the sound of his telephone at 9 a.m. on June 17, 1972. It was Barry Sussman, his boss at the Washington Post, asking if he would work on a Saturday. Five men had been arrested for breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate complex in the middle of the night. The story didn't sound particularly promising to the 29-year-old reporter. He doubted there was much of value to steal from the DNC headquarters. It was an election year. In November, President Richard Nixon would be running against Democratic challenger George McGovern. The break-in had most likely been the work of rogue, hot-headed Republicans looking to cause trouble for the opposition. A preliminary hearing had been scheduled for later that afternoon. So the reporter dragged himself out of bed and headed down to the courthouse. He arrived just as the burglar's arraignments were getting underway. Woodward took a seat near the back and flipped to a clean page of his notepad. The young reporter was startled to learn that in addition to lockpicking tools, the five men had been carrying camera equipment, three pen-sized tear gas guns, and two sophisticated electronic listening devices. They also had close to $6,000 in cash between them, mostly in sequential $100 bills. By all appearances, the men had been in the process of bugging the DNC offices and had been paid handsomely to do so. The burglars were identified as Virgilio Gonzalez, Bernard Barker, Eugenio Martinez, James McCord, and Frank Sturgis. While most newspapers would focus on the fact that four of the five men were Cuban-American, Woodward was more interested in James McCord, the only non-Cuban. When the judge asked the men to explain what they did for a living, McCord answered that he was a security consultant. 
When the judge pressed him for details, McCord hemmed and hawed before finally coming clean. Until recently, he had worked as a security officer for the United States Central Intelligence Agency. That got Woodward's attention. What was an ex-CIA man doing breaking into the Democratic headquarters? He didn't know what it meant, but this was quickly shaping up to be a bigger story than he'd previously thought. Someone was behind the break-in, someone with a hefty pocketbook, access to CIA men, and presumably political motivations. As the arraignments drew to a close, Woodward raced back to the Washington Post offices. While Woodward was scrawling notes in the Washington, D.C. courtroom, Richard Milhouse Nixon was enjoying a long weekend at his home in Florida. Things were going well for the 59-year-old 37th president of the United States, his recent visit to the People's Republic of China, and historical meeting with Chairman Mao Zedong had been well-received. Relations with the Soviet Union were better than they had been in years. The withdrawal from Vietnam was taking longer than he would like, but there was no helping it. Most importantly, Nixon had a healthy lead over McGovern in the polls. While he wasn't willing to rest on his laurels, he fully expected to win re-election in November. But that was all before he learned about Watergate. According to his memoirs, Nixon learned about the break-in through a newspaper article he read on the morning of June 18th. He claims that he initially dismissed the break-in as a prank and didn't think about it again until he was on the plane back to Washington. Nixon's special counsel, Charles Coulson, remembers things differently. He claims that he spent most of Sunday on the phone discussing the break-in with the president. When Nixon learned that one of the arrested burglars was ex-CIA security officer James McCord, he became so enraged that he hurled an ashtray across the room. Nixon had good reason to be upset. Since retiring from the Central Intelligence Agency, James McCord had been working as a security consultant for both the Republican National Committee and Nixon's own fundraising organization, the Committee to Re-Elect the President, which would soon come to be known derisively as Creep. McCord's involvement was a big problem for the campaign and Nixon himself. At best, it looked like he couldn't control his people. At worst, it implied something that was previously considered unthinkable, that the President of the United States was involved in criminal activity. While Nixon and Colson were discussing how to react to McCord's arrest, Woodward and his partner, 28-year-old Carl Bernstein, were digging up everything they could find on the burglars. On June 19th, the Monday after the break-in, the Washington Post ran an article under the headline, GOP security aid among five arrested in bugging affair. Woodward and Bernstein had uncovered the link between McCord and the president's re-election committee. John Mitchell, the head of the campaign arm and Nixon's former attorney general, released a defensive statement insisting that the burglars, quote, were not operating either on our behalf or with our consent. Three days later, on June 22nd, President Nixon publicly addressed the break-in for the first time by insisting that, quote, the White House has had no involvement whatever in this particular incident. Most of the press accepted the blanket denial. 
It seemed crazy to think that the White House could be involved in such a nefarious and shoddy operation, especially since it wasn't clear what the president stood to gain by bugging the DNC offices. Without evidence to the contrary, any speculation that the White House was involved would be considered highly unprofessional. But Woodward and Bernstein weren't satisfied. Between the large sums of cash found on the burglars and McCord's connections to the CIA and Creep, they figured that someone in the government or Nixon's campaign committee must have been involved. But proving that would be a difficult task. Fortunately, Woodward had a friend high up in the executive branch. He had helped the reporter on some stories in the past under the condition that Woodward never quote him, even anonymously. In newspaper parlance, he was on deep background. No one at the Washington Post, not even Bernstein, knew Woodward's source's true identity. One of the Post editors had started referring to the source as Deep Throat, a play on his deep background status, and a reference to a pornographic film that was making a momentary sensation. The unfortunate name stuck. When Woodward reached out to his source and asked about Watergate, Deep Throat seemed nervous and would only say that things were about to heat up. He did give Woodward one piece of information. One of the Watergate burglars was carrying an address book with the name Howard E. Hunt written beside the words W. House. Woodward tried all the Howard Hunts in the phone book, but came up dry. As a last Hail Mary, he dialed the number for the White House and asked to speak to Howard Hunt. To his surprise, the operator transferred him to the office of Charles Colson, Nixon's special counsel. Colson's secretary answered. Howard Hunt wasn't in at the moment, but she could offer another number where he might be reached. Woodward put down the phone in disbelief at what had just happened. Since learning about McCord's involvement with Creep, he had suspected that someone higher up in the fundraising committee might have ordered or at least known about the break-in. Now, he had established a direct link between the Watergate burglars and the president's inner circle. Next, the White House moves to squash the FBI's investigation into the Watergate burglaries. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now, back to the story. By mid-July of 1972, most national newspapers had moved on from the Watergate story. Woodward's discovery linking the break-in at the DNC headquarters to men close to the president had made little more than a blip in the coverage of the upcoming elections, and Nixon was still performing well ahead of McGovern in the polls. The American people simply didn't believe that their president could be behind such a shoddy burglary. By the end of summer, only the Washington Post was covering the story with any frequency. 
Woodward and Bernstein had spent the weeks since Watergate questioning the employees of Nixon's re-election committee, but so far, no one was talking. As soon as the creep employees heard that Woodward and Bernstein worked with the Post, they clammed up and refused to talk. The reporters didn't know what to make of it. They had expected reticence to talk about the embarrassing story, but the fear they saw in the creep employees' faces was undeniable. It was almost as if someone had threatened them into silence. But rather than convincing Woodward and Bernstein to drop the case, the cloud of mystery surrounding Watergate only heightened the reporter's sense that there was something more to the story. Tired of having screen doors shut in their faces, the reporters decided it was time to try a new track. Woodward reached out to Deep Throat, his source at the executive branch who had supplied the Howard Hunt tip. This time, Deep Throat seemed even more nervous than before. He told the reporter that people at the White House were taking Watergate very seriously, much more seriously than the rest of the nation. If anyone found out that Deep Throat was leaking info to the press, he could lose his job and even face prosecution, not to mention make an enemy of the most powerful man on the planet. Despite the risks, Deep Throat agreed to help Woodward where he could. But they had to be careful. That meant no more phone conversations. If Woodward wanted to meet, he would place a flower pot with a red flag on the rear of his balcony. Then, in the middle of the night, he would take a series of cabs to a prearranged meeting place at a darkened garage. Frequently, the information Woodward was looking for was too sensitive for Deep Throat to give him. But he could offer guidance and confirm information the reporter already had. He assured Woodward that he was moving in the right direction and encouraged him not to give up the trail they had begun with Howard Hunt. Woodward left the meeting with a new focus. If the creep employees wouldn't talk, he and Bernstein would have to try a new tactic— They would follow the money. On August 1st, the Washington Post published a Woodward and Bernstein article under the headline, Bug Suspect Got Campaign Funds. The reporters had traced a $25,000 check deposited into the bank accounts of one of the Watergate burglars back to Nixon's re-election committee. Even more damning, the check which had originally been earmarked as a political donation, had been laundered through a Mexican bank to make it more difficult to track. The article also revealed that the FBI suspected White House consultant Howard E. Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy of involvement in Watergate. The White House responded by firing Liddy and distancing itself from Hunt, but the damage was done. Even if no one else at the White House had been aware of the plan, Two people involved with Nixon's re-election committee had approved of the break-in. Donations to Nixon's campaign had been used to fund a criminal act. Republicans could no longer believably claim that Watergate had been the work of overzealous citizens with no connection to the president. On August 29th, Nixon held a press conference at his Oceanside home in San Clemente, California, and once again addressed the Watergate break-in. 
After conceding that mistakes had been made on both sides of the political aisle, he assured the press that 34-year-old White House counsel John Dean had personally investigated the accusations and found no ties to the White House. Nixon then made what would turn out to be one of the most brazen and ironic statements of his political career. Quote, I can say categorically that his investigation indicates that no one on the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed was involved in this very bizarre incident. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur, because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Nixon's speech held one modicum of truth. John Dean's investigation hadn't found anything because John Dean's investigation didn't exist. In fact, ever since June 17th, Nixon and his aides had been doing everything in their power to stymie the official investigations into the burglary. That's the official story, at least. John Dean would later admit that he and FBI Director Patrick Gray had personally destroyed incriminating documents from Howard Hunt's safe. But even after Dean's admission, Nixon's apologists would question whether the men had acted on the president's orders or their own volition. But more on that in a bit. As September arrived, Woodward continued his covert meetings with Deep Throat while he and Bernstein pounded the pavement. After three months on the Watergate case, it felt like the reporters were finally making progress. The cracks were beginning to show amongst the ranks of Nixon's re-election committee. Several employees were now convinced that their bosses were involved in something illegal. While most were still too scared to give up any information on their own, a few were willing to confirm or deny information that the reporters already had. On October 10th, less than a month before election night, the Washington Post released their most damaging revelation yet under the headline, FBI Finds Nixon Aides Sabotaged Democrats. Thanks to tips from Deep Throat and the few creep employees willing to talk, Woodward and Bernstein had discovered that Watergate was not an isolated incident. For over a year before the June 17th DNC bugging operation, members of the re-election committee had conducted a massive campaign of politically motivated spying and sabotage designed to ensure Nixon's second term. Frequently, these dirty tricks amounted to little more than practical jokes. In one instance, creep associates raced through the halls of a hotel where DNC campaign staffers were staying and stole all the shoes they'd left out in the hall to be polished. But other activities were more serious and sometimes illegal. They spread slanderous rumors about Nixon's political enemies to the press and forged letters to disgrace them. They had already been successful in forcing a significant Democrat challenger to drop out of the race during the primaries. Again, that's all the official story says. While many of the men who participated in these activities would later admit to their crimes, it still left the unanswered question of how much Nixon actually knew about the operations. We do know that some of his closest advisors and aides were involved. 
As Bernstein and Woodward reported on October 10th, these sabotage operations had all been paid for through a secret slush fund at the Committee to Re-elect the President. Moreover, the activities were not merely the brainchild of Liddy and Hunt, but had been conducted at the direction of White House officials. In fact, the slush fund was controlled by John Mitchell, the head of Creep, while he was still serving as Nixon's attorney general. Despite its explosive content, Woodward and Bernstein's article barely registered with the American public. Only McGovern and the DNC seemed willing to believe that members of the White House staff had been involved in an elaborate conspiracy. Many Americans dismissed the accusations as politics as usual. On November 7, 1972, Richard Nixon defeated George McGovern in a landslide victory, taking 49 states and over 60% of the vote. In the aftermath, some of Nixon's aides privately joked that the Watergate scandal was to thank for Nixon's win. The Democrats had spent the last few months of the campaign fixated on an issue that, according to the results, Americans simply didn't care about. As Nixon began his second term, Woodward and Bernstein found themselves in a rut. After all of their reporting on the Watergate story, Americans had chosen to stick with Nixon. While their work had played a critical role in the arrests of G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, they were confident that other members of Nixon's administration were guilty as well. But so far, only seven men, Liddy, Hunt, and the five burglars, had been indicted. For the young reporters, it felt like a failure. But the story was far from over. On January 8, 1973, the indicted men's trials began. Howard Hunt and the four Cubans pled guilty immediately, though they maintained that no one else was involved. McCord and Liddy fought their charges, but nonetheless, they were convicted on January 30th on all eight counts. From the outside, the guilty verdicts might have seemed like the conclusion to the Watergate story. But for Nixon and his administration, they marked the moment that the real problems began. Though the public didn't know it yet, Creep had already spent close to $500,000 on the Watergate burglars' legal fees in an effort to ensure their silence. Now that each defendant faced upwards of 40 years in prison, that silence was going to become a lot more expensive. On March 21st, John Dean visited Nixon in the Oval Office. Desperate to convince the president of the seriousness of the situation, the agitated young lawyer explained that Watergate had become, quote, a cancer on the presidency that was growing daily. If they didn't find some way to get it under control, it was only a matter of time before their allies started to turn against them. His counsel could not have been more prescient. Two days later, the judge from the Watergate trial addressed his court and read a letter that he'd received from James McCord, the burglar and former CIA officer. In the letter, McCord clearly spelled out a number of issues that he believed had affected his trial. Quote, One, there was political pressure applied to the defendants to plead guilty and remain silent. Two, 
Perjury occurred during the trial in matters highly material to the very structure, orientation, and impact of the government's case, and to the motivation and intent of the defendants. Three, others involved in the Watergate operation were not identified during the trial when they could have been by those testifying. For almost a year, Woodward and Bernstein had written countless words on the Watergate scandal, each article chipping away at the seemingly impenetrable wall of lies surrounding the White House. Woodward was proud of the work he and his partner had done, but he was well aware that it hadn't changed anything. But from the moment McCord's letter was read before the court, it was like a dam had burst open. As the White House scrambled to work on yet another denial, John Dean began to sense that the tides were shifting. When Nixon asked him to put together a document on everything he knew about Watergate, the 35-year-old lawyer suspected that he was about to become the scapegoat for the entire cover-up. On April 17th, John Dean informed the president that he had begun cooperating with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Later that same day, Nixon learned that along with Dean, his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, and top aide John Ehrlichman were being investigated for their roles in the cover-up. Two weeks later, on April 30th, Richard Nixon addressed the American people from their television screens. He once again insisted that he was innocent and had no knowledge of the involvement of anyone in his administration. Nevertheless, Due to the accusations, he had found it necessary to accept the resignation of H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and John Dean. For the sake of maximum transparency, he would also be appointing a new attorney general. But by this point, no declarations of innocence could stop what was coming. On May 17th, the Senate's newly formed Watergate Committee began a series of televised hearings into the break-ins and cover-up accusations. Lasting for over two weeks, the hearings were a cultural event the likes of which the world had never seen. The major TV networks took turns carrying the live broadcasts, while PBS replayed the proceedings at night. NPR aired audio of the hearings gavel to gavel. On May 18th, one day after the Watergate hearings began, Nixon's new attorney general, Elliot Richardson, announced that he was appointing an independent special prosecutor to investigate allegations of criminal activities surrounding Watergate. The special prosecutor would have the right to follow whatever leads they saw fit, divulge their findings at their own discretion, and could only be removed by the attorney general himself. In short, Nixon's ability to thwart or monitor the investigation in any way was effectively blocked. The man Richardson had selected for the role was far from the neutral party that everyone had expected. Archibald Cox was an attorney, law professor, and former solicitor general with a sterling record. He was also a staunch liberal Democrat and a friend of many of the president's political enemies. Publicly, Nixon applauded the attorney general's choice and promised his full cooperation with the investigation. But privately, he was furious. In his memoirs, he would state that, quote, if Richardson had searched specifically for the man whom I least trusted, he could have not done better than Archibald Cox. 
The president now found himself in the unprecedented position of being simultaneously investigated by both the judicial and legislative branches. And finally, all of America had taken notice. Almost one year earlier, Watergate headlines had elicited eye rolls and apathy. Now, the entire nation was gripped by Watergate fever. According to the U.S. Senate, within one month of the hearings, an astonishing 97% of Americans were aware of the scandal. 71% of Americans were following the hearings through at least one media format. The hearings made stars of a number of politicians. Sam Irvin, the folksy Democratic senator from North Carolina who led the hearings, became famous for eviscerating witnesses without dropping his country lawyer mannerisms. Republican Senator Howard Baker asked, quote, What did the president know and when did he know it so frequently that it became permanently ingrained in the American lexicon? But the real stars were the line of Nixon appointees who were called to testify, most notably Nixon's former special counsel, John Dean. The young lawyer shocked the Senate Watergate committee with one stunning revelation after another. He insisted that he had spoken to Nixon about the Watergate cover-up on more than 35 separate occasions, that the president had advanced knowledge of payments to buy the Watergate burglar's silence, and that he was willing to pay upwards of $1 million to keep them from cooperating with prosecutors. Unfortunately, Dean didn't have any documentation to prove his claims. And as the only highly placed member of Nixon's staff who had turned state's witness against the president, he had suddenly made himself a lot of enemies. One after another, the president's loyal lieutenants attempted to pin the entire cover-up on him. For a moment, it seemed that Watergate might forever remain an unsatisfying case of he said, he said, with the public forced to choose between Nixon's word and Dean's. But there were still more revelations to come. In the last week of the hearings, a White House aide named Alexander Butterfield told Senate investigators something that not even John Dean knew. In February of 1971, Nixon had installed a voice-activated tape recording system in the Oval Office, the president had secretly been recording every meeting and phone call he had taken since before the Watergate break-in. Somewhere in the bowels of the White House, there were tapes that could prove whether Dean or Nixon was lying. They could definitively answer what the president knew and when he knew it, if they ever saw the light of day. Coming up, the White House resists pressure to release the Nixon tapes. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1973, America had reached peak Watergate frenzy. One study determined that 85% of the population tuned in to follow the Senate Watergate hearings. As the hearings drew to a close, the committee's investigation uncovered the fact that Nixon had secretly taped conversations in the Oval Office. The response was immediate. 
both the Senate committee and Special Prosecutor Archibald Cox requested that the White House turn over any tapes relating to Watergate. John Dean had helped put together a list of specific dates and times of meetings that he believed would be compromising to the president. On the evening of July 23rd, both the Senate committee and the special prosecutor's office received a written statement that Nixon would not be turning over any tapes. Archibald Cox raced back to his office to prepare his response. The next morning, Cox issued a subpoena for eight taped conversations that John Dean had identified. The president once again refused to cooperate. In a public address to the American people on August 15th, he explained his position by stating, quote, A much more important principle is involved in this question than what the tapes might prove about Watergate. This principle of confidentiality of presidential conversations is at stake in the question of these tapes. I must and I shall oppose any efforts to destroy this principle, which is so vital to the conduct of this great office. Virtually no one bought the argument. Within days, Nixon's approval ratings plummeted to 31%, marking a 36% drop in only six months. Previously, staunch Nixon supporters were forced to admit that the president was hiding something. Whatever their political affiliations, everyone wanted to hear what was on the tapes. On October 19th, with the deadline to respond to Cox's subpoena fast approaching, Nixon suggested a compromise. The White House would provide the special prosecutor's office with transcriptions of the pertinent tapes. An independent third party would be allowed to review the audio tapes and would confirm that the transcripts were accurate. After that, the prosecutors would agree not to request the tapes again. If Nixon's compromise wasn't bad enough, his choice of third party made it an obvious ploy. Nixon suggested John Stennis, a senator from Mississippi who was technically a Democrat, but was a known Nixon supporter. He was also famously nearly deaf. Unsurprisingly, Archibald Cox refused the offer. He announced that he would be informing the Justice Department that Nixon had refused to comply with the subpoena. At last, it seemed that President Nixon had his back up against the wall, but he was not going down without a fight. The next day, October 20th, would come to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre. According to the mandate of the special prosecutor's office, Nixon could not fire Archibald Cox, but he could get rid of his boss. On Saturday, October 20th, Nixon called his attorney general, Elliot Richardson, and demanded that he fire Archibald Cox. Richardson refused and immediately resigned in protest. This meant that the Justice Department's second-in-command, the newly appointed Attorney General William Ruckelshaus, now held authority over the special prosecutor's office. Nixon proceeded to order Ruckelshaus to fire Cox. Like Richardson, he refused and tendered his resignation. Nixon moved on down the line to Robert Bork, the Solicitor General. At last, the president had found someone willing to follow his orders— Bork wrote the letter firing Archibald Cox, bringing an end to the chaos. 
Nixon had rid himself of one enemy, but his situation was now more dire than ever. His flagrant attempts to influence the investigation had destroyed any question of his innocence. On November 17, 1973, Nixon addressed Americans in yet another desperate attempt to convince them of his innocence. In the historic press conference, he stated the words that would ironically come to define his presidency. Let me just say this. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Feelings of frustration and impatience pervaded the nation as 1974 dawned. It had been six months since the existence of the Nixon tapes was revealed to the public, yet the content of the tapes was still being withheld. But despite the lack of new discoveries, the Senate Watergate Committee had quietly continued its investigation. In March, their work led a federal grand jury to indict seven of Nixon's top aides, including John Mitchell, H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Charles Colson. And while Archibald Cox had been removed, the special prosecutor's office was still operational. Solicitor General Bork appointed Leon Jaworski to take over the investigation. Jaworski immediately followed in his predecessor's footsteps by subpoenaing the White House for 64 recordings. Nixon was still determined not to release the audio tapes, but after the backlash he'd faced for the Saturday Night Massacre, he knew that he couldn't simply ignore the subpoenas. On May 1st, the White House released 1,254 pages of edited transcripts of the recorded conversations. The White House's summary of the documents argued that they would put an end to the accusations since, quote, in all of the thousands of words spoken, even though they often are unclear and ambiguous, not once does it appear that the President of the United States was engaged in a criminal plot to obstruct justice. But if the White House had truly believed this would remove the shroud over Nixon's presidency, they were sorely mistaken. Rather than proving his innocence, the edited transcripts raised new questions about Watergate. At one point, Nixon discussed the prospect of raising a million dollars for hush money, just as John Dean had alleged. There were veiled references to money laundering, burglaries, and a host of other activities that made Nixon seem more like a mafia boss than a president. Aside from any illegal activity, the transcripts simply made Nixon look bad. Whereas Nixon had once been considered something of a policy genius, he now appeared self-obsessed, paranoid, reckless, and crude. The pages were littered with so many instances of the phrase expletive deleted that it became a national joke. The only thing the transcripts didn't show was any concern about the country's best interest. But while the contents of the transcripts were incredibly damaging, what wasn't in them was possibly even more troubling. 
an 18-and-a-half-minute section of a conversation between Nixon and Haldeman from the Monday after the break-in was blank. When asked about the missing section, White House Chief of Staff Alexander Haig said he feared that it had been erased by some sinister force. Unsurprisingly, many Americans jumped to the conclusion that the sinister force responsible for the scrubbed conversation was Nixon himself. The implication was damning. Whatever was said in those 18 and a half minutes had to be more damaging than anything the White House had already released. But while the transcripts were plenty damaging, neither Jaworski nor the Senate Watergate Committee were satisfied with what they had. They wanted the unedited audio recordings as originally requested. If the tapes truly were consistent with the transcripts, then Nixon should have no problem turning them over. Nixon doubled down on his insistence that the tapes were protected under executive privilege. But the Supreme Court disagreed. On July 24, 1974, the court unanimously ruled that Nixon had to turn the unedited tapes over to Jaworski's special prosecutor's office. from the so-called smoking gun tape, one of many handed over to the special prosecutor's office in late July. It was first released to the public on August 4, 1974. This time, the official story is pretty tough to dispute. Despite the poor audio quality, the tape reveals a conversation between H.R. Haldeman and Richard Nixon, recorded in the Oval Office on June 23, 1972, just six days after the Watergate break-in. Haldeman broaches the topic by saying, quote, the Democratic break-in thing. We're back to the, in the problem area because the FBI is not under control, because Gray doesn't exactly know how to control them, and they have, their investigation is now leading into some productive areas, and it goes in some directions. We don't want it to go. When Nixon encourages his chief of staff to continue, Haldeman suggests using the CIA to shut down the FBI's investigation. Quote, The way to handle this now is for us to have Walters call Pat Gray and just say, stay the hell out of this. This is uh, business here. We don't want you to go any further on it. Nixon replies, uh-huh. After reviewing the plan, he tells Haldeman, you call them in. Good. Good deal. Play it tough. That's the way they play it, and that's the way we are going to play it. The tape confirmed that Nixon had been involved in the cover-up from the beginning. Whatever support the president still had on Capitol Hill immediately evaporated. On the evening of August 7th, the Republican leaders of the House and Senate met with Nixon at the White House and informed him that he faced almost certain impeachment. The next day, August 8, 1974, 61-year-old President Nixon gathered his cabinet in the Oval Office. 
he began to weep as he informed his advisors and aides that he intended to step down. The president continued to cry silently while camera crews were brought, lights were assembled, and makeup was applied. Just before nine o'clock, Nixon sat behind his desk and turned to face the camera for the last time. Good evening. This is the 37th time I have spoken to you from this office, where so many decisions have been made that shape the history of this nation. Each time I have done so to discuss with you some matter that I believe affected the national interest. In all the decisions I have made in my public life, I have always tried to do what was best for the nation. The president explained that while he had always hoped to complete his term in office, he no longer had the political base in Congress to make it worthwhile. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. America needs a full-time president and a full-time Congress, particularly at this time with problems we face at home and abroad, to continue to fight through the months ahead for my personal vindication would almost totally absorb the time and attention of both the President and the Congress in a period when our entire focus should be on the great issues of peace abroad and prosperity without inflation at home. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. The next morning, the disgraced 37th president merged onto the South Lawn of the White House. After a final emotional speech to his staff, he and his wife Pat made their way to the presidential helicopter. Grinning broadly, he extended both arms and spread his finger in a V a symbol he had used to signal victory in Vietnam. Nixon ducked his head and disappeared inside as the door shut. Moments later, his staff and reporters watched as the helicopter lifted up off the lawn, ferrying Richard Nixon over and away from the White House for the last time. Vice President Gerald Ford was officially sworn in as president three hours after his predecessor's departure in the East Room of the White House. After taking the presidential oath, Ford turned to the cameras to deliver his first address as president. Quote, My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our Constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. But there is a higher power, by whatever name we honor him, who ordains not only righteousness, but love, not only justice, but mercy. One month later, Ford revealed that his reference to mercy had not been lip service. On September 8, 1974, he pardoned Nixon of any and all crimes committed during his presidency. He claimed that this was necessary, 
quote, to firmly shut and seal the book on Watergate. In the immediate wake of the pardon, most Americans reacted with indignant fury. For two years, the Watergate scandal and investigation had consumed the nation, and now many felt that there would be no justice. The unpopular pardon would hamper Ford for the remainder of his term. In 1976, he lost the presidency to Democratic challenger Jimmy Carter. While Richard Nixon was never prosecuted for his role in Watergate, many of his top aides and advisors were. By the end of the Senate and Justice Department investigations, 69 people were indicted, 48 were ultimately found guilty. In 1973, the Washington Post received a Pulitzer Prize for Woodward and Bernstein's Watergate coverage. In 2005, 31 years after Nixon's resignation, their source at the executive branch was finally revealed. The mysterious figure known as Deep Throat was Mark Felt, the associate director and second-in-command at the FBI during Watergate. But even with that revelation, many believed the story of Watergate still wasn't over. Next week, we'll continue our investigation into Watergate by exploring some of the conspiracy theories surrounding the scandal. Conspiracy theory number one, the wife of Nixon's former attorney general was kidnapped, beaten, and held prisoner for four days to keep her from blowing the whistle on Watergate. Conspiracy theory number two, the CIA engineered the crash of United Airlines Flight 553, which killed 45 people as part of the Watergate cover-up. And conspiracy theory number three, two of the Watergate burglars participated in the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and Nixon's reticence to release the White House tapes stemmed from not wanting the CIA's role in the assassination to come to light. With an official story so obscured by lies and cover-ups, the truth about Watergate is hard to unravel. Join us next week as we search for answers. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. If you'd like to learn more about Mark Felt's role in Watergate and the counterintelligence tactics he employed in his meetings with Bob Woodward, check out our episode on Deep Throat in Espionage, another ParCast original. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. And remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. 
This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Andrew Kelleher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Thank you.